Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today, Dr. Newfeld is going to be presenting us a message called Trustworthy and True. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Revelation 22, 6 to 15. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. As we move now to the end of our study in Revelation, we notice that the words at the end of the book form not so much a conclusion, but a final appeal. Have you been listening, John asks, and if you have, have you taken the message of this book to heart? Now, the very last verses of the book, which we will study tomorrow, contain an appeal to anyone reading the book, first, to be converted to Christ, and then second, there's a warning not to tamper with the contents of this book. That really is a fitting conclusion, but before we get there, John wants to impress on his readers who have followed him through these chapters of this, you know, this remarkable and astonishing book, the truth of what they've read, and the urgency that these words should place upon anyone who reads them. So first, let's see as John seeks to complete the book that he wants to impress on his readers the truthfulness of what he has written. Indeed, John insists that this message, that the book of Revelation is true and that it came to him from Jesus and through the mediation of an angel. Remember that the angel has shown John the new Jerusalem with its crystal clear river, its tree of life, its streets of gold, its massive jewels, and the assurance that all who are there will see God face to face. The the sun will not be needed there. The light will be so brilliant. And having shown John all of this, the angel then says, notice it, it's in verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. Everything, not just the vision of the new Jerusalem, but, but everything from the beginning of the book all the way through the end is a trustworthy and reliable revelation. And then having reported the words of the angel, John adds his own words. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. You'll notice that John is calling himself a prophet. And this is so very important, especially now as we come to the end of the book and consider what it is that we've read. Revelation, you see, is not just a letter from a pastor or a bishop 
who happens to oversee seven churches, and he's trying to encourage his flock. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a pastor who has words of comfort and encouragement for a struggling group of churches. I mean, such a letter would be welcome, and it would be a notable achievement. But John is saying, look, if you think that this is all that this book is, you need to think again. John is saying, no, no, no. This is more than a pastoral book. This is a prophetic book, and that makes this book different from any other book that you read. Look again at how John puts his sentence together. When John mentions the spirits of the prophets, he's not referring here to the Holy Spirit. Notice he's using the plural, spirits. That is, each prophet has his own spirit. So what does that mean? Well, our spirit or our soul is that immaterial part of our humanity through which we reason and reflect and pray and are aware and worship and are able to perceive God. And John says, it is God who is the God of the spirits of the prophets. That is, God is directing the natural faculties of the prophet, and through these natural capacities, God is communicating his message. And that's what happened to me when I wrote this book. See, in essence, what John says here is really no different from what Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Remember, Peter said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, men spoke from God, says Peter. And to be clear, they were just men. They were human beings who possessed a real human spirit. You know, I sometimes have to smile when I think of those times when somebody has told me that he or she believes that the Bible was just written by men. So this person will say to me, this is true, as if he or she means to say that if I can prove to you that it was only written by men, I can prove to you that it was not written by God. And that's just silly. Of course the Bible was written by men who are merely men. And when one reads the Bible in the original languages, the various styles of the authors is overwhelmingly apparent. Their personality shines through. You know, here's an easy example. When you read John and when you read Paul, it becomes clear that Paul's writings come from the pen of a scholar. That's who he was. And then in contrast, John's writings are far more simple. He uses simple words, and his style of grammar is far easier to grasp, and that's who John was, although Revelation, we see a greater capacity in John. You see, when the Bible was written, God never overruled the personalities of men, that is, their human spirit. But, says Peter, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The words we often use to describe that process is the word inspired, and when we use the word inspired, we don't mean that they simply found inspiration. We mean that even while real human beings wrote the Bible, God oversaw and superintended and assured that every single word was exactly what he wanted to have communicated. And so, if you will, the Bible, well, it's much like Jesus. Jesus was fully human and also fully God. And that's how the Bible is. The Bible is a fully human book, but it's also a fully divine book so that it perfectly and accurately and without the admixture of error communicates exactly what it is that God wants to say through the spirits of the prophets. And that, says John, is what God has communicated through me in this book that is the book of Revelation. 
It is my book, to be sure. It came off my pen, and it reflects what I saw. But it is exactly what God wanted to have said. And that's why every last word that you have read in this book is both trustworthy and true. And then having made that point that everything John has written is a revelation from God himself, John then adds what is the sixth beatitude of this book. So you might remember that I've said that this is fascinating, by the way, that there are in the book of Revelation seven beatitudes or seven statements that begin with the word blessed. I mean, there are in Revelation seven promises of blessing, seven promises that God's favor comes upon anyone who reads the book. You know, first in Revelation 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the prophecy of this book. Second in Revelation 14, 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Revelation 16, 15, third, blessed is the one who stays awake. Fourth, Revelation 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Fifth, in Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now the sixth beatitude. Revelation 22, verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of this book. So what can that mean? What does it mean to keep the prophecies? Does it mean that you remember them, or does it mean that we obey them? I think the answer to that is found way back in verse 7. There, rather than the angel speaking, John hears Jesus himself say, I am coming soon. And that must mean that in this book, to keep the words of this book means to live expectantly, in the light of Jesus' soon return. It means to persevere in persecution. It means to resist the lure of compromise with a culture that's destined to collapse. It means to be victorious, to continue to be faithful to Christ in the present hour, knowing that the coming of our Lord is at hand. But then what do we make of the words, I'm coming soon? You know, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus has uttered those words, and he's still not returned. And given that long amount of time, there must have been those who argued that the book has already disproved itself. But let's leave that question aside for just a moment and ask how this statement must have been understood by the seven churches who received the book in the first place. Now, these churches were facing persecution and false teaching and the lure of a very sensuous culture. To them, the word, I am coming soon, offered both hope and warning. Hang in there. Don't give up. Be willing to pay any price. Don't fear, because it won't be long now. Jesus is coming soon. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Now, of course, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that the claim is made that Jesus is coming soon. I mean, we found that claim back in chapter 2, verse 16, and then in chapter 3, verse 11. And furthermore, Jesus spoke that way during his earthly ministry. I mean, you have to listen to his words recorded in Matthew 24, verse 42. He said, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That is, be ready, be anticipating. Or listen to Paul's words in Romans 13, 11 to 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Or listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 where he says, We who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. That is, you have to hear the anticipation by which he says those words. Who are the ones who are left alive when the Lord returns? Because whoever they are, they will be a group of people who, well, it might be you. And you need to know that he's coming soon. Now, were those words wrong? John says, no. These words are trustworthy and true. You can count on this stuff. You need to live in anticipation of that event. You know, years ago, I heard a major trade union leader in Canada say that his father had been a preacher and said this union leader, you know, all that stuff that my father said about the second coming, well, that stuff just never happened. It was all nonsense. You know, he was explaining how his father was a preacher but how he had become an atheist. It never happened, he said. At least, that's how it seemed to him. You know, soon can't mean thousands of years into the future. That's definitely not soon. But, and this is so very important, the book of Revelation never tells us what soon actually means. You know, it seems quite likely to me that John would have had the same attitude about soon as is expressed in the First Testament. Consider Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Clearly, God, who is eternal, sees time from a very different vantage point than we do. And it is for this reason that I have tried to say that when we think about, you know, the events in Revelation, and when we ask, when will it be that these events happen? Well, We do wrong if we set dates or if we think that these events will or won't happen in our generation or in our time era. You see, I know there are all manner of people who point to, you know, world events today or technology that's presently being invented and other things, and they want to make the point that now, finally, we're at the place in history where the events in Revelation can actually happen. And I respond, I think you're making a mistake. Should we actually think, for instance, that the people in the first century should have realized that Jesus couldn't have come back in their day. See, Jesus comes again at the Father's timetable, not at ours. He is the one who breaks the seals. The seals are not broken when some technology gets invented. He controls his second coming, and he has not told us when. And when we ask him when, he responds by saying, soon. Soon as I define soon. So live in expectation. And verse 8 is fascinating then. You know, once again, John falls down at the feet of the angel who showed him these things. And we saw him do that back in chapter 19 and verse 10. And when I discussed the matter then, it seemed to be from my perspective that in chapter 19, verse 10, John had simply become confused. There he heard the words that said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in his elation and in confusion, at least from my vantage point, 
he confused the angel for Jesus himself. But that can't be said with what occurs here in chapter 22, verse 8. Here John is completely aware that he's addressing the angel, and still he falls to worship the angel. He's already been warned not to do this, and yet here he does it, and he has to be restrained. So why? Well, one commentator has said John's falling to worship the angel expresses his overwhelming conviction of the divine authority of the message. Well, that might be right. You know, John knows that this angel's message comes directly from God. More so, John is still wrong to pay any veneration to the angel. Every angel is but a servant of God, and that also is true of the mightiest teachers and preachers of the gospel in history. We should be thankful for them and give thanks to God. We should honor them properly, but we should also recognize that only God is worthy of worship. And with that, the angel tells John not to seal the prophecy of this book. And here we're reminded of Daniel chapter 8. You know, in Daniel 8, verse 26, after Daniel was given his vision, he was told, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So for Daniel to seal up the vision meant that, you know, the vision was true, but the vision was reserved for a long time in the future. But now in Revelation, the vision is not to be sealed up at all, meaning that there's nothing in this book that could not begin to happen at any time. God's people should always be anticipating Christ's return. These events described here might at any moment break into our present era. And so based on these truths, the angel has a word for all who read the words of this book. The first word is for evildoers. If you look down to verse 15, you see what he has in mind. The sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who lives and practices the lie. To this group, the unregenerate, who are prone not to take the words of this book very seriously, there comes a command of God. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Now, does that surprise you? Shouldn't the message be, since the message of this book is true, let the filthy wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But, but this, you know, let the filthy still be filthy. Well, it's surprising, really. But think of it from another vantage point. When the passage tells the evildoer to keep doing evil, the passage is saying that in the present hour, God will not restrain you. You may continue to mock God, and you may encourage others to flaunt his law. You may continue to build a society that is inspired by the ancient dragon, and and you may continue to throw God's chosen elect into prison, and you may cause suffering. You may continue to build up Babylon in opposition to God, and God will not restrain you. In this present hour, God will let you continue to be filthy. He is determined that this should be. And the church of Jesus needs to hear this. There will be evildoers in our day. You know, in this era in which we live, when the kingdom has already entered into the world through the salvation that is offered up in Jesus, evildoers will flourish at the permission of God. And that's why God's people will suffer. God has ordained that it should be so. But there's a second command here, and this one is addressed to God's redeemed children. Let the righteous still do right. Let the holy still be holy. And if you consider those words, notice they're found in verse 11. Now go down to verse 14, where it says, blessed are those who wash their robes. It's an, it's an interesting phrase because we already saw very similar words to that all the way back in Revelation 7, verse 14. There we read, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes. 
and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's fascinating that in chapter 7, verse 14, the verb washed is in the Greek aorist tense. You know, in Greek, the aorist tense tends to be a punctiliar verb. It means it speaks about something that happens at one point in time. So, at one point in time, says Revelation 7, the saints have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So, no doubt, that's speaking about their conversion experience. Those who are saved confessed their sins and in faith threw themselves on the mercy of God and were born again through the cross of Jesus. They were made clean through his blood. Okay, but now let's go forward. Chapter 22, verse 14. And here the Greek verb is in the present tense. It's a participle. Those who wash their robes refers to those who continually wash their robes. That is, those who have once washed their robes in the blood of Jesus will continue to do so unto the present day. That is, they're continually repenting of of all known sins. They're continually trusting in Jesus. They're continually walking in an ongoing walk of holiness. They keep on choosing holiness. They keep on rejecting the kingdom of the Antichrist. John says, let them keep doing that, even as evildoers keep choosing evil. Let's go back to verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. You know, Jesus will come soon, and when he comes, he will repay both the wicked and the righteous. And because these words are trustworthy and true, because Jesus is coming again, these things are the outcome of every way of life. So take heed if you're wicked, And take heed if you're one of the redeemed. These words are faithful and true. Thanks, John. You know, I find it fascinating right at the very onset where it said, you know, uh, these words are trustworthy and true. It's almost like there's an emphasis here. You should understand this. This is something you can be assured of. Yeah. And how important it is, therefore, for us to become familiar with what's trustworthy and true. Um, You know, Ben, you and I have talked about the fact that sometimes, uh, you know, Revelation is this book that just gets uh, just missed and people spend a little time in it. It's as if, you know, it's not a part of serious Christian study, but it needs to be. And uh, the fact that the vision that John gives us here can be counted on, uh, wow, how important it is to fill our souls and our minds uh, with these kind of thoughts because it's not imagination, it's trustworthy, and it's true. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for the final message in the Triumph of the Lamb series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425. 
or visit backtothebible.ca.